So, um, everybody hear me at the back? That's okay? Okay. So tonight, Shadar and I are going to share exploring the Eightfold Path with you. Um, and so this is a fun idea. And we'll see how um, we're able to use all the path factors together as we talk about them. So, as we've been explaining, and as both Howie and Shada have talked about the past few nights, as we've explored the Four Noble Truths, the Four Noble Truths culminate in the fourth truth, the Eightfold Path. And this was the Buddha's middle way. It wasn't really a compromise between the extremes of sensual um, experience and of deprivation, It was more transcending both by seeing clearly the problems with each one and transcending them. And it's a gradual path to awakening, to liberation. It's not a mystical thing. It's more a process that's available to all of us for all of our lives. And it can encompass everything we do, not just on retreat, but for the rest of our lives. It impacts every aspect of life. And it's really an authentic way of being in the world that can bring us happiness and enable us to live from our true values. So really, it's like a a responsive, responsible relationship to life that's based on our very deepest intentions. And it's the, the eight... Um, factors of the path are divided into three baskets, as they're called, sila, samadhi, and panya. That's um, morality or integrity. The samadhi basket is the meditation basket. And then the panya is wisdom. And they're all components that are intertwining like the strands of a cable. And we need each one of them and it's like a not such really a linear path, but a very interwoven spiral path where being with each factor enriches and deepens all of the rest. So we can begin anywhere on the path. And we can, by developing one factor, be simultaneously developing the others. And we don't, it's not a to-do list of eight things to become a good person. It really is not about that. However, it is a prescription. The Buddha taught the Eightfold Path as a prescription to free us from suffering. And so if you put the prescription in your pocket and you take it home and you show it to people and say, look at this wonderful prescription I've got, but you never actually take the prescription, you can't walk the Eightfold Path. So it's not a concept It's an invitation to directly experience. Um, And that's what we're hoping to explore with you tonight. One way of also understanding it is that they're like folds, um, each of the aspect of the path, so that as you start to look at each one, it unfolds and reveals more and more depth. And so sometimes I think of the drop-down menu on a computer. You know, you click on one factor of the path and look at all that stuff that (laughs) drops down when you start to explore it. 
Um, so the first of these factors is wise understanding. And even though the baskets begin with sila and then go to samadhi and panya, we begin with wise understanding because we need to have right view. We need to have a perspective to begin, um, to actually have some kind of map to know um, where we're starting from, some of the landmarks along the way, and where we're going. So we need a map, we need a perspective to begin. And often it's thought of as the forerunner. And some of that is because our views, whether we're aware of our deeper views and values or not, they have a tremendous impact on our lives. In other words, actions have consequences. The Buddha said, there's no single factor so responsible for the arising of unwholesome states of mind as wrong view, and no factor so helpful for the arising of wholesome states of mind as right view. So there's no single factor as responsible for the suffering of living beings as wrong view. And the terms wrong and right are translations of sama. And, in, um, and right in, in that full translation, translation means of the full development of understanding. So it's a deep understanding, a wise understanding, rather than it um, being good or bad. The other um, important piece of wise understanding is understanding the Four Noble Truths. Um, And in fact, understanding the Four Noble Truths forms both the beginning of the path and the end of the path. We begin by having the view and the understanding of suffering, the causes of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path. And that takes us to a deeper wisdom of the same understanding of the truths. So we keep deepening and deepening. Um, we're more and more able to let go. One of the ways um, I really like to think of the Four Noble Truths in this context, I learned from Stephen Batchelor. And he said, sometimes people see wise understanding or the noble truths as a set of beliefs or a doctrine that Buddhism is about, something to believe. But it's more like he draws the analogy of the bottle that Alice got in Alice in Wonderland that said, drink me. And so the first noble truth is labeled, understand me, directly understand. And the third noble truth says on it, let go. That's the second noble truth. Sorry, the third noble truth says, realize me, directly realize cessation. And the fourth noble truth says, cultivate me. So they're all calls to action that we do in our lives to keep deepening our understanding and thus deepening our freedom and our wisdom. So I'd just like to read this, um, this little story from a book of Gil Fransdahl's, one of our um, colleagues, as a way of moving from um, wise understanding 
into the next path factor, which is wise intention. So this is called the path. When arriving at the monastery, new monks and nuns would commonly ask the abbess for instructions on the path of practice. If they were insistent enough about finding the path, the abbess would take them to a remote corner of the monastery where people seldom went. There she pointed them to a narrow walkway that disappeared into the bushes and trees. You will find the path at the end of this walkway. And then the old abbess turned away. Intrigued, they would set off in search of the path. Before long, the trail took a sharp turn. When they rounded the corner, they came face to face with a very large mirror that blocked their way. Seeing their own reflection confused them. Some wondered, maybe I've taken the wrong path. But no matter how many times they tried to retrace their steps or start over, sooner or later they found the mirror blocking their way. More than a few assumed the mirror was placed to show them that the real path was in them, not in the external world. And this understanding frightened some, and they ran away. Others collapsed in hopelessness. Some simmered in anger. Occasionally someone would get so upset they'd hurl a rock at their reflection. The mirror, however, was impervious, and whenever a rock was thrown at it, the stone bounced back and struck them instead. There were some monastics that lingered in front of the mirror, gazing at their own likeness. It mesmerized and delighted them. Their conceit spilled over as they perceived themselves as being the great Buddhist path. And of course, there were those who simply tried to walk around the mirror, believing it blocked their way. They plunged headlong into the thicket of bushes, only to emerge scratched by the thorns and undergrowth. From time to time, one of them would see their mother or father standing next to them in the reflection. This was an eerie sight, since they knew they were alone. At other times, their image was obscured by crowds of people. In due course, some of the monks and nuns calmed down enough to look carefully at their reflection. For many, it was the first time they'd ever really looked deeply into themselves. More than a few concluded that the mirror and the reflection were at the end of the path. Those who did ended up stuck for a very long time. Others, however, remembered the abbess directive about finding the path at the end of the walkway. When these monks and nuns looked deeply into their likeness in the mirror, a wonderful realization arose in their minds. The reflection is of me, but I am not the reflection. And then when they reached out and lightly touched the mirror, it gave way, like a great door silently swinging open. It revealed a bright, expansive, sunlit section of the garden, unlike anything they could have ever imagined. Just beyond, at the edge of the path, stood the old abbess holding two shovels.
And so that's wise view, seeing the ways that we get caught in our reflection, in our identity. And those are the three characteristics, the impermanence and identification. And, of course, when you get through the wise view, there's a lot of work to be done on the path. (laughs) And so wise view is the bridge to our skillful action. And so I'll... turn it over to Shada. So the first factor is the wise view. And the second factor is, the, is what's called um, wise thought. And this is still within the basket of the wisdom. So, and then we move from there to the basket of the asila or wise action and then to the meditation. And why it's so important how we view and understand the world is because that's what actually conditions our thoughts. That's what determines our thoughts and the, and the thought patterns. And the thoughts are what get, gives rise to our intentions and motivations. And this is what really directs our action. So it's all dependent on our understanding and our view of things. And we know that if our view gets very small and rigid and narrow and fixed, then that's how we're going to move in our life. That's, how, how, that's what's really going to determine many of our choices and our actions. So the, so, so the thoughts are so important to really be mindful of and to investigate and to be able to discriminate because then these are what really condition the speech and the action and the livelihood, which is the second basket. It's that they go right, it's that there's a very, really very nice progression of how these factors are laid out. And then the last three are really our resources, the, the uh, effort and the mindfulness and the con- concentration, which is really what is our meditation practice. These are the resources that we use to explore how we're going to live this wise and conscious life. So they all work together. They're all interrelated together. So with wise thought, another way that the uh, Pali is translated sometimes is uh, wise intention or wise attitude, wise aspiration. It has many different Uh, ways to reflect on it, to get a sense of what's actually being pointed to. When we hear wise thought, we might just imagine that it has to do with our thinking patterns. But it's more than that. It's more energetic than that. Because when we, if we can get a sense, we can see how what we're thinking actually has energy to it. It has like, it has a force to it, which then moves us into our speech and our action. It moves, the, it moves us into our speech and it moves the body into different actions. So we have our mind, our speech, and our body and our actions. And this is really what we need to be paying attention to. It's these intentions, it's the way the thought forms a kind of impulse or intention in the mind 
which then begins to direct the kinds of choices and actions that we take. And this is really where we need to bring our discrimination. In the, in the discourses of the Buddha, the Buddha talks about before he was an enlightened uh, um, Buddha, enlightened person, that he divided his thoughts into two different categories. And they were what he called his unskillful thoughts and his skillful thoughts, or wholesome and unwholesome thoughts. And what he saw was that there were these three kinds of unskillful thoughts that he needed to be paying attention to. And these were thoughts of greed, thoughts of aversion or anger, and thoughts of cruelty. And it's interesting that the third one actually is a thought that moves into a more intense kind of ill will. And he saw that if he actually followed these thoughts into his speech and his action, this is what was going to give rise to more suffering, to more pain, to more harm. And then what he saw was that he could actually, by paying attention, he could incline his mind to thoughts that were actually more wholesome or more skillful. And when, when he did that, he saw how that actually transformed his mind into his mind and his speech and his action into ways that were actually bringing about more harmony and more care and more compassion. And so, so very much, this is one of the, the pith teachings of the Buddha, is we see that we can actually, it's not that we're trying to get rid of our thoughts. That's not what the Buddha was talking about. It's a skillful means. It's one we practice so we can begin to have some control and training over our mind. But we actually transmute these negative or difficult thoughts into thoughts that are going to manifest in ways that are more uh, loving and kind and generous and truthful and connecting. And so we can say that the, the, the thoughts of greed, the Buddha saw that the thoughts of greed turned into thoughts of non-greed or the absence of greed. And the absence of greed manifests as a renunciation or a letting go, that the, the, the letting go of the grasping. And the thoughts of hatred or anger, aversion, the letting go of that turns into loving-kindness. It's non-anger or non-ill will turns into loving-kindness and metta. And then the thoughts of, uh, of uh, cruelty, when we let go of that, when those are transformed, it actually transforms into thoughts of compassion. So renunciation and loving-kindness and compassion, and then our speech and our action are motivated from that uh, expression of our being. And so we practice in our daily life when we're, when we're really discre- looking at our thoughts and, and paying attention, we can see how we actually can turn our, our, our uh, mind away from these unskillful and negative thought patterns which we know are going to give rise to the way we're talking and the way we're actually moving and expressing ourselves in the world. So it's also talked about as wise aspiration because we can aspire to what's good. We can aspire to what's wholesome. And that energy, as we transform that energy, 
we move with our aspirations and that which is really valuable and important to us for, for ourselves as human beings living in this world, we naturally aspire to what is good. We naturally inspire, aspire to what is wholesome. It, when, we, when we calm down and quiet down and open up, we open up to the mystery this is the classic kind of um, qu- uh, a quote from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada, that really points to this for us. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So we actually can begin to turn our mind towards what is wholesome. And as we do this, we are, we are naturally entering into the next factor on the Eightfold Path, which, is the, which is the, begins the morality, the ethical considerations for us, how we're actually li- living in the world. Because this turning is actually a turning away from our narrow, selfish view that is dictated by our obsession, by our, uh, I was speaking about the other night, by the tanha, by this drivenness, this self-centered drivenness in our lives. We start to release that as we turn away from it and our heart begins to open. Our heart opens in a way where we want to be kind, we want to be helpful, we want to be connected. It's a natural movement of our heart. So the first, uh, the, the first factor in the, in the sila basket, which is the third factor on the Eightfold Noble Path, is why speech. And with wise speech, we're really taking responsibility for our speech. We really, you know, it's all this inward looking at what are the consequences, as Adrian mentioned. We're really looking at that all of every, th- every thought, every impulse, every intention, speech, action has consequences. So when we start to reflect on this, we are really starting to take responsibility for the way that we are in our, in our speech and actions. And with speech, it's probably the most difficult pattern of all. The Buddha, when I was reading the Buddha's text, I think in the was one particular text, there's 150 of his discourses, he probably speaks about why speech more than anything else because of the harm that can happen, the power of our words. They're not empty, even though, where are they? We can't, you know, we say something and where is it? They leave no trace, but they do leave a trace. They're very powerful, they're very impactful. And we can feel the immediate result of our unkindness not only the, the result of how it impacts the person or the people, but how it impacts ourselves when we start to become more sensitive to the impulse, the intention behind our speak, speech. The Buddha speaks about four kinds of speech, we call unwise speech, that actually can be transformed into what he calls noble speech. 
He uses, he uses this beautiful word of noble, being noble. The whole path is about becoming noble, this kind of carefree. One of the, my Tibetan teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, calls this, no, this, this nobility carefree dignity. It's a way of really being a dignified but not rigid, <laughs> really being kind of relaxed and carefree but dignified in our speech and our actions. So the first kind of speech is speaking falsehood. And this speech can be transformed into noble speech, which is true and correct and beneficial. This is what the Buddha says, true and correct, beneficial, knowing the correct time. Isn't that interesting? The Buddha is so clever. It's like knowing the correct time. And if we just follow that one, we could... We could Uh, spare ourselves so much difficulty if we just had a little bit more patience and sensitivity to the situation and just maybe thought, this isn't the right time. (laughs) It may be true, it may be correct, it may be beneficial, but it's not the right time. (laughs) And he says, this is out of compassion for all beings. (laughs) And it's really something that we can remember when we go back to really have compassion for all beings in our speech. And so the kind of the, the phrase that we use is uh, to, be, uh, to say things which are truthful and useful. Truthful and useful. Maybe it's truthful, but maybe it's not so useful. And maybe it's not a good time. And maybe it's never a good time. <laughs> so this is where, you know, we really can reflect this way. The other, the next one is speaking maliciously, which the Buddha says to create division. And he says as a way to turn this into noble speech, it's a way of promoting harmony and friendship. Promoting harmony and friendship. The third one is speaking harshly, hurtful, when we're hurtful to others. We use angry speech or harsh, harsh speech. And the Buddha says, to transform that into noble speech, he says to utter words that go to the heart. Utter words that go to the heart. And he doesn't even say, say here that they need to be kind. But maybe sometimes it's firm, but it's truthful, and it's, and it's, it's something that's going to be very useful in that moment, and it'll go to the heart. The fourth one is gossip. And he says the way to transform that is to use words that are beneficial and worth recording. (laughs) And this is even before the digital age, right? (laughs) So worth recording. So those four, uh, not speaking falsehood, not speaking maliciously, not speaking harshly, not gossiping. Very practical because all those are going to lead to, to harm. And when we become more sensitive, as we start to practice more, we know that we can't get away with it. You know, we, you know how you just want to? You just want to just dig that, you know, dig that in. You know, they did something you didn't like, and you really want them to know about it. And that impulse is there, and that, but you just know, you know, as you become more sensitive, that there are going to be consequences. We call it karmic kickback. You know, it's going to come back, and I'm going to be the one who suffers. 
And more and more as we understand this, the karma of this, it's the, the intention, the action, the result. Intention, the thought, the intention, the action, the result. This is what we begin to reflect on. The Buddha says, reflect on this repeatedly before an action, in the middle of an action, at the end of an action, reflect on the consequences of these actions. Because this is really where we begin to transform. We transform our consciousness in this way. The fifth one is wise action. Again, it leads, so wise speech leads into wise action. And this is really the foundation of the practice. This is the one that stabilizes our, con- our consciousness. And these are the five ethical guidelines that we started our retreat with. And just to repeat them, and um, there's, I, I won't be spending a lot of time on this because we have a lot we want to cover on this, but the um, five are not killing any living being, not taking that which isn't offered freely, in other words, not stealing, being very uh, uh, conscious of our sexual, miscon- uh, se- sexual conduct, so that we're not uh, involved in activity and actions that cause harm to ourselves and other people. To, again, use wise speech. So he's not only has a whole factor for wise speech, but it's also in in the fifth factor where it's in the guideline of wise speech. And then the last one is not indulging in intoxicants that cloud the mind so that we're not able to be mindful and conscious and practice. Practice these noble teachings. This really is what stabilizes our mind. And until the mind is stable, until we have that steadiness in our practice, we can follow these five guidelines as a way to keep us on track. Because if we don't, then we're going to really feel the agitation and the karmic kickback kickback from breaking these precepts, breaking these guidelines. It's immediate. We feel it immediately when we do something like that, if we have some consciousness. And it's not that we live out of some uh, some should or right, or this is the right way to be, or we should be like this. But it's more that as we start to wake up, we want to live like this. We want to live in a way that's compassionate and non-harming and caring and respectful. It's a natural way of living. Then this is what then informs our choice in the next factor, which is wise livelihood. So these three baskets of the morality is wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And basically, wise livelihood involves not breaking one or more of the five precepts. And so we we can really reflect on our choices for our our work and our, uh, our, our livelihood based on these ethical guidelines because we, if, as we start to really explore all the different areas of our life, we want everything, all of our speech and all of our action to be supporting 
this compassionate and wise way of living. And so the Buddha, in these Eightfold Noble Path, the Buddha was looking at every aspect of our life, all supporting this way of, of waking up and living in this, this free and liberated life. He said in the, in the text, it says that uh, he encourages uh, 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 people, lay people, monks and nuns are already practicing this, but lay people um, to abstain from trading in weapons, human beings, meat, intoxicants, which are drugs and alcohol, and poisons. Those are the five traditional categories for the Buddha. And it, it points to, and isn't it interesting how it, doesn't, it isn't so different now, 2,500 years later? And then, he, and then he also says, anything that involves killing or hurting someone bodily. And then also speaking untruth. So this actually will, you know, can bring up a lot of personal reflection. And perhaps many ethical considerations for ourselves in our work and our choices and and especially in this you know day and age where you know in this economy we may not have such a broad range of choice just even to get our basic resources for our living but yet as we practice more and more we want to live with these ethical considerations in our lives because we're really talking about the quality of our consciousness, the quality of our life, the quality of our relationships. Everything's being pointed to. This um, Buddhist story illustrates this right livelihood. Once there was a fabulous palace. The people who lived in the palace were given warm meals, fine clothing, private baths, and everything they needed to live in luxury. Just outside the palace gate, an old man lived in one room, a one-room shack he made himself, slept on an old mat, and ate, and ate simply. One day, the old man sat outside the palace eating his dinner of lentils and rice, and a guard came to talk to him. Foolish man, he said, if you would serve the king, you could feast every night. And the old man smiled and replied, Dear sir, if you, would eat, if you would eat lentils and rice, you wouldn't need to serve the king. <laughs> so it does require a certain kind of renunciation. As we make these considerations, and we make considerations around our, li- our livelihood choices as well, it may mean that we have to let go and maybe live with less than we had originally imagined might be possible for us. And this is this age of, of, of accumulation and success and these great visions for us for what's possible. But as we bring in more and more of our true values, maybe it means to start to live with less. The Buddha was very, very practical, and he talked about living a balanced life, neither extravagant nor miserly. The middle way, again, Adrian's talking about the middle way. So this is what we're cultivating. Cultivating this path to the cessation of dukkha, the cessation of suffering. How do we 
bring this about? How do we calm our mind to ease our mind? To live in a way that supports our serenity and our equanimity, living with a certain emotional balance in our life. And that's what Adrian's going to speak about now, how to these resources that really help us bring in this emotional balance so that we can really practice this, uh, this, these, this, these practices and walk this path in the way that we have been invited to do. So we can't really walk the path without the samadhi basket. That's the basket that contains wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. Even just to begin to take a step on the path requires energy. And all of you, what precedes energy is actually faith. Um, It took some faith and trust for everybody to come here. The beginning of an interest or a desire to actually be free from suffering and that this might be a path. And what's beautiful about these teachings is that these three occur in so many of the groupings and lists. So the five faculties or the five powers of faith, energy and concentration, mindfulness and wisdom are all um, interwoven also together. And mindfulness balances both the energy and the concentration and the faith and the wisdom. And once we have the faith to take the first step, then what keeps our practice going, what sustains us to keep walking on the path is energy, that perseverance, determination. Energy can be a vitality or um, a brightness that um, guides our practice. Virya is the Pali word for it. Energy follows intention. And intention, in a way, is like an electrical current. I like that analogy. And that unless we keep it going, the nothing will come about. And so it's the energy that keeps connecting, keeps connecting, and helps us follow through on what our, our intentions are. And as Shada was talking about, the Buddha saw that there were these two types of thought, thoughts that led to happiness, thoughts that led to suffering. And in the same way, he described four wise efforts. The first two efforts were the effort to um, guard against the unskillful mind states, unskillful states that led to suffering, to guard against them and to avoid them. And then the second two wise efforts were to develop and cultivate the states that led to wisdom and compassion and loving kindness and generosity. So that there was a really clear direction that we were putting our energy and our effort into. And also, what was important was our attitude, how we were doing it, so that we weren't using striving or forcing or harshness. That would be um, wrong effort. (laughs) But in practicing wise effort, our attitude is really helpful. The other thing is the continuity, so that 
in our lives as we practice. We want to balance the... Sometimes we can get into striving and pushing and wanting an outcome. And the other extreme is spacing out and waking up in the morning. It's nice and cozy. I think I, maybe I'll try practicing lying down and then we fall asleep. <laughs> it's wise effort that manages to actually get you out <laughs> to be awake and practice. So it's finding that balance between the two. And very often in the suttas, the example is given of tuning a musical instrument. If you tune it too tight, it sounds bad. If you tune it too loose, it sounds bad. And so um, it's for each of us in our lives, that will change over time. It's not that you find the right balance of effort and then you're set for life. It's something that will keep changing, depending on the circumstances, how busy we are and how, um, how much there is going on in our lives and how our bodies are. So we're paying attention to our body, mind and heart and equilibrating the effort accordingly. So another thing we can do in our daily lives is we can keep noticing, what am I cultivating right now? What am I using my energy to cultivate? Oh, I'm putting a lot of energy into worrying, obsessing, planning, and (laughs) spinning wheels and decision-making. Wow, that's what I'm cultivating. Do I really want to do that? And so then it's possible to abandon that. The Buddha called it abandoning when you saw you were caught in some pattern like that. And to redirect the energy in some other way that was skillful and nurturing. So we're abandoning and guarding against the patterns that we get in that are difficult and redirecting ourselves. Um, And so it's choosing, where do I want to put my energy? What's being beneficial to me? And sometimes it can be really obvious, and sometimes it can be subtle. And it's not about rejecting difficult patterns. Um, It's more about not feeding them, seeing the ways that we're feeding them. I'm feeding this difficult pattern by believing it. I'm believing the judgments and the opinions I have about myself that I can't do this or or I'm never going to be able to, whatever. I'm feeding that by believing it. And so we notice how it is that we're feeding that. And then we can stop fueling that particular fire. Say we've got caught in a pattern of self-judgment. And then every time we believe it, we're, we're, I was talking this afternoon, it's like watering um, seeds in your vegetable garden. And we were talking about... Um, cultivating fear broccoli by keeping on feeding (laughs) the fear vegetables (laughs) and cultivating kind carrots. That was the analogy we used. And so we can choose what I want to cultivate in my garden. How am I using my time? And then also seeing that energy gets tied up when we identify with something, when we make something mine. This is me. This is how I am. And it gets stuck like that. I'm a depressed person. I'm a fearful person. I'm an indecisive person. 
the energy gets bound up. Whereas if we can use our wise understanding and all the past factors come in, we can use our wise understanding to say, oh, fear has arisen. And then that energy can move through and it's not trapped and our effort and energy can be used in ways that bring us happiness and not suffering. So we can also, another analogy I like with this, um, also involves mindfulness. Um, I'm using my mindfulness (laughs) to notice what time it is so that I can apply my energy and effort (laughs) appropriately (laughs) um, and make time for the path factors that are important. So we need to move on to mindfulness. Um, and there's, you can never have too much mindfulness. You can have too much effort, too much concentration, but mindfulness balances the other factors beautifully. It's reflective, it's clear seeing, and it also investigates. It's present in every moment of wise intention. And it's that gentle awareness that says, what's happening right now? What, what's going on in the present moment? And it more and more permeates our daily lives so that we're less rigid and more flexible. The key point is really that felt sense, that embodiment that we've really been emphasizing this retreat. What's happening in my body? All of the path factors are we can work with by being embodied, knowing what's going on in this body. The four foundations of mindfulness help us be aware of what am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I, which hindrance am I caught in? What's going on? And we can do that whatever we're doing during the day. It sees clearly, is what I'm doing causing me suffering? Is what I'm doing bringing me happiness? Am I in balance or not? And it shows us where, when our lives are congruent. It sees clearly where we get identified. Some people, were on, when they're on retreat, they have a kind of retreat personality. And then when they're out in their daily lives, they have a world personality. And the two are kind of a long way apart. And so mindfulness sees that. It sees the differences where we're identified. And we can begin to have compassion for the ways we get caught. How do I want to manifest in the world? Are my values being enacted in the world? Mindfulness shows us that. The other really useful thing the Buddha taught about mindfulness was suitability. And this is really important when we move out in the world because we can have different almost wavelengths or frequencies of mindfulness. Sometimes our lives are fairly simple and it really works to be um, very intimate with different movements and actions and exactly what's going on. And other times in our life, that's not suitable. We need to be in touch with the greater picture. We need to take into account the greater picture of our lives. What's suitable right now? Um, some years ago on a retreat, a surgeon asked how he could bring mindfulness into the operating room. He really wanted to be very mindful when he was doing surgery. 
And so I said, well, you don't want to do lifting, moving, <laughs> curting. <laughs> you want the big picture. You want to be aware of many different aspects of the things that are going on. So you want a broader view. So we want to know the suitability of what we're doing and have a, be able to adapt the frequency of our mindfulness so that we're not having this expectation of being mindful of every night minute moment of our lives. But what's realistic? Um, Twenty years ago, when my, my son was really small, I was really inspired and in love with the practice, and I wanted to sit every moment I could. And so I would rush through the bedtime stories to, to go and sit. <laughs> And then it dawned on me, (laughs) am I really following the path? (laughs) No. What would be more suitable would to actually read the bedtime stories mindfully and be fully directly present in the bedtime stories. And when I started to do that, it was beautiful. I could embody them, I could be all the characters, I could connect with him and be fully present with him and his enjoyment of them. And I was just, I was learning just as much as if I'd been sitting and watching my breath. So what's suitable in your life? What's a way of bringing mindfulness in that's suitable? So what we're doing is we're combining these to, so that we can have our mind be awake and clear and present to make choices that are leading to awakening and wisdom and not to more confusion and delusion. And we can develop discerning wisdom. We can be discerning about what we're doing. Is it skillful to wait until this anger has died down before I'm ready to speak? Am I ready to speak yet? Or whatever the situation is, am I clear enough to act? What really supports our mindfulness and helps us get that clarity is concentration. What concentration does is it collects and unifies and stabilizes the mind. And you've been developing it on retreat here. And in our daily lives, we need some concentration, even if it's a much lower level than we normally think of, to collect our attention in. It's very powerful. And it can bring an inner peace and stillness from which we can see clearly. It's like the snow globe that many of us had when we were kids. As concentration develops, the little snowflakes settle, and then you can see whoever it is that's inside the snow globe, whether it's a reindeer or a Santa or whatever it is. But the clarity comes through the concentration, the collecting in. So it gathers together body, mind, and heart, so that we can be in alignment with what's happening and what's true for ourselves. It helps us stay connected to our intention. So by combining skillfully effort, mindfulness, and concentration, we're connecting and sustaining so that we can see clearly how to enact our intentions. without either forcing and striving, or hanging out and getting spaced out. So it balances those, 
and also it balances active cultivation with effortless energy. So both those. And mindfulness is like, um, you know, if you're walking along the tightrope of the path, mindfulness is like the pole that helps you balance. And there's effort and concentration. And there's this constant um, balancing of them that help us stay on the path to follow what we really want in our lives. So we're collected and yet relaxed. And there are two types of concentration. One is the concentration really that we're developing here, where first we're with the breath and then gradually we bring in more and more objects to our awareness, like emotions and thoughts and feelings, so that we're able to see those clearly. And that's the kind of concentration often we're using in our daily life. And then there's a deeper, more absorptive concentration that we can develop on retreat that's used on deeper retreats to make the mind, help the mind be very malleable so that we start to see more and more how flexible the mind can be. And that's really valuable too. So just a a difference between mindfulness and concentration that I find helpful is that mindfulness enhances the recollective function of the brain, so it expands the breadth of attention, it's seeing what's there. And um, concentration enhances the selective function, so it restricts the breadth of attention. And both are valuable. And you can, you use your discerning wisdom to see what's appropriate at any one time. I need a bit more focus here. Or I need more breadth here. Because we don't want what I call cow consciousness, where we get very still and concentrated. But nothing, no wisdom is arising. Ajahn Chah would use the analogy, chickens sit on their nests for a long time. So sitting in that kind of duh stillness isn't necessarily useful. We want the wisdom. We want to apply our concentration to move into the to move around the path into the wisdom <coughs> basket again. So there's this constant flow and movement. The concentration, mindfulness and effort bring us more wisdom that we can then see more clearly how we want to direct our attention, how we want to live our lives with our wise action, our wise speech, and our wise um, livelihood. So as we walk the path, we're being curious and awake and interested. It's a continual (coughs) practice, a continual being engaged. And it's the effort that sustains us to keep going on the path. And when we have the moments of wisdom and insight, that renews the faith to take the next step again. And really the path is everything we do. Whatever we do is part of the path. Even when we're having a difficult time and it feels like we're, the path has gotten all muddy and a mess and we're struggling, mindfulness can bring kindness and light to that too. We're just making a commitment to align with reality as it's unfolding for us.
So as we stay with the path, as we use these qualities to stay and sustain our practice and be with our creativity to keep realigning our intention, trust develops and we start to see that our innate capacities for wisdom, for clear seeing, begin to unfold on their own. And then there's delight and there's clarity and there's balance and there's joy in our lives. So over and over again, we begin where we are. And our pace is unique for each of us. And so we honor that, our own way of walking the path and our own way of realizing the path. So we wish you joy walking the path. And may it bring you freedom, happiness, and contentment. Yeah, let's just sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.